You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today, I'm here with Tom Hammond, CEO and co-founder of UserWise. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is awesome. I don't often get to be on this side of a podcast, so it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I've actually almost never been on that side, and I find it sort of when I have been quite disconcerting. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, I probably will. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about you. Um, you have a professional background in market research, um, but now you're an investor in a lot of gaming companies um, and. First and sort of let's we we're going to get to talk about user wise. Um, tell us a little bit first what what attracted you to the gaming world. Well, you know, um, I've always loved games as much as my uh, mom would let us play them <laughs> growing up. Um, which, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I even ever dared to dream that I'd be able to work in games uh, growing up. So. Uh, growing up, I was actually uh, planning to be uh, a doctor, so I went uh, to school to kind of do that. Um, ended up taking a year off before going to med school while uh, working in uh, electronic medical records, uh, healthcare IT type stuff. Um, so that was actually before market research. Um, and then uh, <laughs> kind of got into the whole entrepreneurial thing from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know slew of failed companies, market researchers happened to be, you know, one that actually worked. Um, one before that was, uh, I think if you, you look at Uber, they have something called Uber Freight. Um, I was like seven years early with that idea and also had no idea what I was doing, but that one kind of fell flat on its face. But it was validation that like at least Uber pulled off like what I had in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, when we started Theorem Reach, it is kind of market research, but it was a little bit more like I came at it from the gaming side, right? So it's rewarded surveys. You know, you take a survey, you get 100 gems in your, mm-hmm. your game. At that point in time, I played way more Clash of Clans than I would like to admit. And I really just wanted more gems, right? So that was kind of the angle that I came on. Uh, and, you know, throughout there, I we got closer and closer to games doing lots of different monetization consulting type things. Like how do you add rewarded video without tanking your IAPs? get into live ops and progressively go from there. And uh, eventually that led to um, spinning off user-wise as a separate entity because we realized that game operations, games as a service, live ops is kind of the the future of games. It's a better business model, um, but there's really no software to help games actually run their games like this. So we decided to build it. And uh, yeah, along the way, um, I guess in terms of investing, I don't really honestly do it for the money. Um, I, I kind of care less about that. I more look for um, just really capable entrepreneurs um, that we can do more of like a strategic advisory, strategic investor type role, uh, because it's just so fun to watch them take an idea and just turn it from nothing into this like really amazing thing. And it's kind of fun to be, you know, a small part of that journey, I guess, so to speak. Uh, I, I agree. Okay, so we talked a little bit about what kind of drove you to found uh, or spin off UserWise. Um, and you talked a little bit about why you created a market research firm so that you could get more gems. Uh, what do you think your kind of insights into player desires, needs has, or how has that kind of helped you 
um, or helped inform your live ops product and, and what you do actually with game companies? Yeah, so I think that psychology is something that just about everyone should study um, <laughs> because our brains work in these very unusual, but in many ways, predictable kinds of ways. Um, and failure to actually understand that uh, just leaves so many potential opportunities or things on the table. Um, there's many different <laughs> books that I recommend reading. Um, Go on, give us like three, because I'm curious if you're going to bring up at least one that I, the one that I know. So I think if I was going to start anywhere, reading Thinking Fast and Slow. I knew it! by Richard Kahneman. Like, I, I won't even give you two more. Like, just start there if you haven't read that. And if you have read it, go read it again. Like, I tried to read that book, like, about once a year just because it's it's so crazy because I see, I actually experience myself doing the things that he calls out, and it's very fascinating. Uh -huh. um, but uh, thinking about things from a psychological perspective, I think, are, are just really critical um, when it comes down to doing stuff. Um, such as like player behaviors mm -hmm. um, or even like people's behaviors. So, so here's an example, uh, a real life example where uh, we are looking for a new house. And this was several years ago. Now, I had kind of a certain expectation of what a house should cost and what we are looking for in terms of size and stuff. And this is right about as the COVID epidemic happened and the prices of houses just shot up. Mm -hmm. um, and so where we were thinking like, hey, maybe like 400,000 is like the right house range for like where we're at, like a kind of upgrade for something like that. Very quickly, we learned that 400,000 was nowhere near what it had been before. And now it was like 600,000, mm -hmm. which like had you talked to me like a few months before would have just like blown my mind away. But pretty soon, you know, I noticed like we were like, oh, yeah, check out this one. Like it, it's only 650 or 700,000. It didn't feel it, like the difference was just kind of crazy there. And if you think about that from like a pricing perspective or something like that, you know, you go into a really nice suit store or something, you know, maybe historically you've bought a suit for $200 and now you go in here and like the bottom price suit is, you know, a thousand dollars and it goes up from there. And very quickly you use that baseline price. A thousand dollars is like your reference point. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even if you buy that thousand dollar suit, well, now that $200 pair of shoes doesn't seem that expensive, even though, you know, before a $50 pair of shoes might have been kind of expensive for you and stuff. And so we have this tendency, and this is something that Daniel Kahneman covers in that book, which is we default to using reference points. So whatever mm -hmm. our reference point is, that becomes the point that we key off of. So when I was looking at that house for $400,000, that was my reference point. But when my reference point became $600,000, it was like a different you know, perspective. Um, and I think that's something you can use a lot in games. In terms of like user-wise and the live ops platform that we designed, I don't know that we used a lot of psychological cues in it per se, um, rather, because UserWise is more of a platform where you've got these live ops professionals and QA folks and developers that are, you know, essentially working in the platform for 40 plus hours a week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's less about that, like, you know, first take or the input and more about like, how do we remove the small frictions that you mm -hmm. might not notice the first couple hours that you use it, but like two months in, it's like, oh, this thing's really annoying or whatnot. So it's really designed to be more of like a, 
a working platform and optimized and to kind of get better over time. Um, but again, it's kind of like, how do you expect your players to play your game or to engage with things? You know, if you expect your players to play when they're riding the train in the morning into work or you expect them to play when they're sitting on the toilet or whatnot, you expect them to do this or this or this. Like, how do you design your game in such a way that it accommodates how they're going to be using it within their overall lives? And um, what you talked about sort of like failure to, to a, sort of account for players, like all people's psychology, right? Um, it, it lead to a lot of missed opportunities. How good do you think developers are um, at taking player psychology into account? Um, and, and when should they be doing The assumption is you're going to say they should be doing it right from the start, right? <laughs> um, but is that is that realistic? Is that how most games start, right? Um, I, that, that's, I'm, I'm kind of curious how well you think um, developers do at leveraging player psychology. So I think that there are some companies that are out there that tend to be extremely data-driven and they mm -hmm. kind of have this belief that players have no idea what they want. They don't know what they like. Like we're going to do everything for them and we're just going to look at the data and that's going to be everything that drives there. Then there tends to be some other publishers that are a little bit more of like, well, we're going to use the data. We're going to use our gut, but we're also going to try to like talk to players and understand mm -hmm. them. And they kind of have built out pretty large insights teams and things like that. Typically I see companies like, as they get larger, they start to leverage this more like Riot and Blizzard and even Zynga. They all have pretty large like player insight teams whose entire jobs is just like better understanding their players and their potential players um, so that they can turn those insights into something valuable in terms of like what the games are. Mm -hmm. um, Usually I don't see those really added too far until you kind of become a larger company and then you realize that there's more opportunities to kind of take it even further. Um, how, how can a smaller, so follow up question, how can a smaller um, game company or indie developer kind of, uh, they're not gonna have an insights team. <laughs> so how do they incorporate sort of player psychology into their product development? Yeah, so I'm going to do a little reference here. I know you're not necessarily supposed to, but there's a company called Solson. Shameless plug. <laughs> Shameless plug. Now, I, I do know them, but I've never actually used their service, but a lot of other people have and, and rave about it and stuff. Um, so Solston has basically um, created the kind of like this deep psychological survey that you can kind of give to your players. And by going through there, they're going to ultimately say, hey, this player, these are the things that really kind of drive mm -hmm. them and X, Y, Z. And you can use those for some very interesting insights. Like I, I know I was talking to one game studio that used Solston to kind of deeply understand their players. It was like a battle royale kind of game. And they found that a lot of their most engaged paying players were actually very altruistic and they weren't really about competition. Mm -hmm. Now you could kind of help each other in this version of the game. And so they actually changed some of their creatives to be more about players helping each other rather than the typical battle royale, just like shooting all over the place. And they reduced their like CPIs by like 50% while increasing payers and all these other things, which was just like a very interesting insight of like, hey, can we better connect with the players that are most going to love our game 
So what are those things that the players truly love about our game or, or that really drives them from an internal perspective? What are some of the other sort of like surprising misconceptions that you've come across um, that sort of developers are like, well, this is what they must be motivated by and actually players turn out to be quite different? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think one of the ones that I always hear people kind of overlook um, is just social connections. Um, and I think this is more just a basic human psychological trait. Um, but if you look at many of the games that have long-term retention, like look at some of Supercell games like Clash Royale or Clash of, Clash of Clans, if you talk to most of the players that have been there for a year or two years or more, the primary reason that they come back and play the game each day isn't because they love the game or anything special is going on from a live ops perspective or anything else. They come back because they feel the social obligation to do their part for their clan that have supported them for so long. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are yeah, thinking it's about peer pressure. It's not even social connection. It's peer pressure. Yeah, I mean, you get back and you kind of, I mean, you still enjoy playing the game, obviously, but like, you feel this obligation to like come back and do your thing. And after you do your thing, well, maybe you like play the game a little bit and enjoy yourself a little bit or whatnot. But um, social, like after day 30, I think there's so much retention that comes from these social aspects and making sure you have the right social, you know, connectivity in spots. So usually whenever I'm working with a game and they're struggling with like post day 30 retention, I'm like, well, how are your players working together? Like what's bringing them back so that they can work collaboratively and stuff. I think that's a, thing that I see a lot of folks kind of neglect proper design around. Do you think that um, it's possible, you talked a little bit about this already, um, and the industry is very data driven. Um, I think especially also when when kind of like looking at growth and being able to sort of project LTV. Um, do you think it's possible to get the bulk, if not all of your player insight from data? Or do, does it require conversation right can this sort of in an extreme version can you automate right understanding your players can it be machine driven versus i now need to have a team that's going to call up a user and, and talk to them <laughs> survey them yeah so as powerful as i think the data can be i think that there is always value in talking to your players and like understanding how they do things or why they do things in a specific way um, like here's an example with with data i can figure out which of my players spent three months collecting 100 hero chips but didn't upgrade their hero but it's very difficult for me to figure out well why would you go through all that and then not upgrade their hero like without actually talking to them like so <laughs> did they just forget about now, it like now yeah, i mean why yeah uh, so some of those why questions, I think, tend to be difficult with data. And maybe there are some ways to infer it or whatnot. But um, sometimes if you have those deep conversations with people, the stuff that will come out of those conversations, it may not even be what they say directly, but it might be something that cues some sort of creativity in your mind. Mm -hmm. um, so even when I think about the future of you know, personalization and things like that, like as good as algorithms might be able to be in the future, I don't know if they'll get there. I still think that there will be value in having actual human creativity, thinking about like, 
what's the next thing? How do we push the envelope? How do we give something that our players are going to truly love? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it'll always kind of have some human element of creativity. So we actually, um, it must be a good couple of years ago now, uh, we did a podcast episode with Nick Yee from Quantic Foundry. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with him and he has you know, oh, this yeah. whole sort of like gamer motivation model. Um, and it kind of struck me when I was thinking about our conversation. Um, I think it's, I mean, we talked a little bit about when do, when do developers or designers think about player psychology and how do you find out kind of what motivates your players? But um, let's say that you build a picture, right, of who your players are and what motivates them and what makes them come back to the game and why they love it. and how do you account for kind of like changes? I think there are certain, because psychology is one of those things that you assume is kind of foundational, right? There are certain, thinking fast and slow is a little bit about this. There are certain things, ways that we sort of um, engage with the world that we may not even be aware of, but were you to be aware of them, they sort of hold true forever, right? Um, how how much of sort of uh, p- player psychology or gamer motivation is kind of like foundational and static? Right. If you're in, in the achievement category, you're always going to act like X, Y, Z or Z, as a Brit would say. Um, and how and how often do those motivations change? And follow up question to that. How can developers know that something's changed? How do you account for that? I think psychology and, and things change quite a bit. Even again, I'm going to reference Daniel Kahneman's book. So we have two brains, right? We've right. got our type one brain and our type two brain type one tends to be the brain that just reacts instantly Mm -hmm. to things. So that would be, you know, for the new player that sees that starter offer, that's 80% off for only three 99 or whatever, like, Oh, that seems like a good deal because it's 80% off. Like I'm just going to buy it. At some point that player is going to become an established player. They're actually going to know, exactly what all of the things that are offered in the starter content. They're going to have better reference points. They're going to know what it means to actually use all those things. They're going to become more logical. So when they see an offer in the future, it's not going to trigger that type one brain. It's going to trigger that type two brain, and they're going to be very logical and analytical and think about, you know, what am I actually getting towards this? How is this going to impact the things that I'm working towards? What sort of value is it going to give me? Um, and so, you know, just by playing the game, the things that you're doing, you're going to transition from using your type one brain to your type two brain. Um, and so you've got to change how you do your offers or discounts or whatever to convey and to, you know, make this transition there. And I think those types of things actually can be very data driven. Um, so you might have a segment of players that did XYZ in the game, and they're most likely to probably need an offer like this. And then there's players that did ABC, and they're going to need something more like this. And this is kind of like a useful segue. How do you, and you've kind of done this a little bit already, but how do you put this kind of stuff into practice, right? Um, How do you incorporate player motivation and psychology into sort of like increasing your retention and LTV and in-app purchase conversion and, you know, all manner of other acronyms that you might want to mention. Um, how do you actually, how do you actually sort of use this information in a practical way? Yeah, I think one of the first key things is you need to play your game a lot. 
you need to know wow. you need to know what is what is driving you at this like if i want to sell you something and you play through a game and you get that offer do you actually want to buy that thing is it actually going to provide you value is it actually going to provide you value right now with what you have um like i was recently talking to uh someone at scopely about their star trek game um and so kind of their secret is at any given time, they have anywhere from 7,000 to 10,000 personalized individual offers that are based on what does the player have in their inventory at this current moment? What are the things that they're working towards in the game at this current moment? What kind of payments and and things have they done in the past? Like, do they spend $5 a week or $5 a month or $100 a month or whatnot? So what should we price this at based on their historical purchasing behavior? Because they're probably not going to change a lot. It's 7,000 or 10,000 segments. Yeah, this would be segments and offers, you know, yeah. individually for each of those different segments. Wow. So they know, okay, at a player that is doing this in the game that has XYZ, this is the thing that they most need at this point in time. And so they have that for them as an option to buy, which, you know, if you think about some other games that maybe have five, you know, generic special offers that anyone can buy at a, at a moment, probably for this player at this point in time, none of those offers really match what they need. So they're probably not going to buy them. So, so how do you, how do you implement person, implement it, implement it? What did I just say? Implement probably an eight version of that too but whatever how do you implement personalization like this at scale i don't even understand how scope is doing it with ten thousand seconds. <laughs> well you know i think there's there's phases so maybe you go from five offers to 50 and then 50 to 500 and 500 to 5,000 kind of over time as you you know deeply understand what these players are doing right there and i think there's a combination of looking at them from a data perspective, surveying them, talking to them, playing through the game at those different moments and just kind of recording what they need and things like that. And a whole lot of A-B testing and iteration. Um, now to do that, well, I don't think you can do that even in a spreadsheet or something. You need a platform like UserWise or something built internally or something like that just to organize because you know 10,000 individual offers and 10,000 segments and campaigns happening simultaneously it gets really, really complex really fast. It's really easy to make mistakes. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's why we've kind of built out something like this. But if you really think about it from a realistic perspective, like that's what you need. Like if you wanna sell someone something, you need to give them the valuable thing that they need at this point in time, because otherwise, why are they gonna buy that? Mm -hmm. um, the, I mean, we've talked about personalization and live ops and user wise. Um, and, and I think you're right in, in what you said um, around kind of like games as a service live ops becoming much, much more important um, over the last couple of years. How do you think, how have you seen sort of live ops change and what do you think is going to happen moving forward? So, Here's a very interesting trend that I've started to notice in terms of how some people are using UserWise. Um, you now, you guys recently added support for um, creatives products. that can go to custom app product store pages. Mm -hmm. um, I've started to see some publishers come into UserWise and they will create a segment of players that saw a specific creative. So if we're doing a, a Disney game, they saw the Princess Jasmine creative. 
that was linked to the page that's all about Aladdin saving Princess Jasmine. They get into UserWise, and now there's a segment of Princess Jasmine players, which actually changes the content that they get first. So instead of waiting till chapter 10, their first chapter is all about, you know, going through to save Princess Jasmine from you know, Jafar or whatever. Um, the players that saw the Timon and Pumbaa ad, though, or the, you know, the the dirty castle, you know, is all about Belle going in to clean up the beast, you know, <laughs> disastrous you're castle. You're very conversant in Disney, let me just say. I was about to be like, Frozen? And I'm like, Melissa, is Frozen even Disney? Continue. Yeah. <laughs> you got it, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we're starting to see... and. Basically, it's allowing the marketing team to actually be able to change the player's early experience. They could change the ads that players see per session based on if I think this is going to be a high value, you know, creative or a low value, high ad type creative, like enabling the marketing team to be able to do more than just showing the ad. But how do I, you know, think about the player experience from the end to end, the moment they see the ad? what's in the app store page, their actual experience on the first day, maybe the second day, maybe even up to like day 10 or whatnot, like how far do we want to let the marketing team ultimately control this to really drive the most ideal player experience? And so I think that's a love, one aspect of, of the future where I see some things going. Um, that was supposed to be my last question, but now I have a follow-up question because you, you sort of said, you know, how allowing the marketing team in theory basically to affect the product right to say here is here is how the user is going to experience the game based on my campaign yeah. um do you and i don't know if you you know if you could see this or not but do you see resistance um from product design teams on maybe not design right but on the the product teams that sort of say well but no that the experience of the game is sacrosanct right like this is <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm genuinely asking um, because it sounded like a lot of power to hand to the marketing team. <laughs> <laughs> so like at least within UserWise, we have the ability to create. Um, ultimately, it, it works like a remote config, um, but there's kind of like we have a UI that you can kind of build in guardrails and stuff like that. So as the product team, I kind of have full control over what the marketing team could change. So I'm still fully in in the, the control of things, but instead of me having to set up a hundred different A-B tests or whatever for these marketing people that keep badgering me, I just kind of offset it to them and I can spend more of my time actually, you know, building, building out fun, useful features and things like that. Um, most of the product teams tend to be on the side of like, oh, this is actually really oh, nice because you know they can try all these different variations of things because you know marketing you know they want to test a hundred different things all at once um and so being able to give them the tools to just do that kind of testing is really powerful um and ultimately when they find something that works and it re increases retention all the way through you know product team loves that too because the users are going to get to some of the more interesting features that they've built mm -hmm. for them win-win um well <laughs> I will stop badgering you now with questions. Um, that, thank you very, very much um, for being on the show today. It's any any episode that references Thinking Fast and Slow is a success, in my opinion. Um, go buy it right now. Yeah, yeah go buy it. Shameless plug. Um, so, yes, thank you very much for being on the show today, Tom. Um, and thank you, as always, to everyone else for listening. <laughs>